Hey guys, it's Kelly. And I want to let you know about my very good friend, Elsie Granderson's awesome podcast, Life Out Loud. This season, Elsie talks to some really fascinating people about topics that touch the LGBT plus community from complicated questions about faith to the path to trans acceptance. Really important stuff. He recently sat down with comedian Margaret Cho and two of his close friends, Don Lemon and Jonathan Capehart, to talk about the concept of family of choice. It's a really great listen. So we're making it easy for you by dropping it here. And when you're done, be sure to follow Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson to catch up on all of his past episodes and get new ones delivered right to you every Thursday. Enjoy. I'm Elsie Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. My friend Tony died from complications of AIDS when I was in college. I've spoken about him before. It's because I think about him a lot. Sometimes with tears, a lot of times with laughter, always with a smile. Tony knew I was gay before I did, and in his own way, he looked after me. He knew when I was getting beaten at home. He knew when I was selling drugs on the street. He knew me. I was still in the closet when he died, so for a long time, I didn't fully understand why my heart broke in the unique manner in which it did. It wasn't until I came out years later that I saw Tony wasn't just my friend. He was my big sister, and I miss her. This episode of Life Out Loud is dedicated to the Tonys in our lives, our family of choice. We start things off with one of the funniest people on the planet, the Emmy and Grammy-nominated stand-up comedian and actress, Margaret Cho. I can get Asian. Like, I, my Korean name is Moran. Moran. That's my name. And my Korean name, it's the name of Kim Jong-il's production company. So that's how Asian that is. Um, I have a, a friend who's even more Asian. Her name is I was going to list some of her projects, but when I got to her IMDB page, I realized that it could take up the entire podcast. No, I'm being serious. She has like 107 credits dating back to 1990s, and she's accomplished all of that, plus touring, directing, hosting a podcast, being her fabulous self, all while being openly queer. As if trying to make it in comedy as an Asian American woman wasn't going to be hard enough. But make it, she did. And we talk about three specific friends that she made along the way to stardom, including the late, great Joan Rivers. We also talk about her role in one of the most anticipated queer movies of the year, Fire Island, which is loosely based on a friendship between Bowen Yang and Joel Kim Booster. It also stars Conrad Rickamora, who Margaret told me is shirtless a lot in the movie. That has nothing to do with this episode. I just miss seeing Colliver from How to Get Away with Murder. And the second conversation we're going to have might get a little bit messy. We figure since we're talking about queer friendships and everything, that it may be kind of cool for me to invite members of my family of choice in for a chat. So I asked CNN's Don Lemon and the Washington Post Jonathan Capehart to join me. Jonathan is also host of the Sunday show with Jonathan Capehart on MSNBC. We talk about the strength we get from our bond and some of the hurdles we face as three openly gay black men in news media. But first, the amazing Margaret Cho. I was trying to figure out how to reach you and how to get a hold of you because I'm like I'm super duper fan. I totally love your career, love watching you, you know, experiment and try different things and all the shows and the specials. 
And so I reached out to a buddy of mine by the name of Ben Glebe. Oh, yeah. And I say, Ben, uh-huh. you're a comedian. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how I might be able to get a hold of Margaret Cho? Uh-huh. And bam, 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 instantly got your contact. No problem at all. And then he showed me yeah. that you actually executive produced one of his specials. Yeah, he came to um, Atlanta and um, we were doing shows together. He's a great guy. He's a great comic. Yeah, I've known him for a really long time now. Uh, so I brought his name up because this entire conversation is really talking about friendships. And uh -huh. I just really like the way that friendship seems to be so important, not just in your personal life, but in your professional life as well. Mm. And so as I'm doing this research, I find out that not only do you and I have Ben Glebe uh, as a mutual friend, but that Joan Rivers was your mentor as well. Yes, yes. What a great, um, what a great comedian. What a great lady. She was amazing. Now, what do you think about same-sex marriage, uh, John? I'm totally against it. You are? Yes, Why? because all my friends are gay. I'm not buying gifts. <laughs> I am so sorry. How did you guys meet? We met at some weird award ceremony. She actually had come to my show in New York when I was doing a um, run off Broadway and she really enjoyed it. She invited herself to come and give me an award that I won <laughs> for the show and to present it to me. And then so we met in the 90s and she um, presented me the award and then that night, I remember she didn't eat dinner. It was like, we were like one of those big dinners and she had a, a weird um, box of crystal mints. It was like these clear mints that are like, it was super like menthol mint. It was weird. And then she emptied out the whole <laughs> box and just ate them off of the table. These weird like silver balls. <laughs> it was so bizarre. I think they were like filled with like peppermint oil. Did she use a knife and fork? No, she just like popped them one after the <laughs> other with her fingers. And then she uh, said that she had just launched a jewelry line on QVC. Uh, and that she would send me her entire line of jewelry. And I told her I didn't wear any jewelry. And she was so upset. She didn't speak to me again for two years. And then finally she got over it. <laughs> and then we became friends. And then so she made appearances on every TV show that I was able to get on. I, I forced my hand and uh, made her get on there. And, um, you know, she was a big part of uh, everything, you know, like just life in general and I really counted on her as my big celebrity friend, but also uh, somebody who just really understood what women in comedy go through and um, it's just so incredibly helpful and, and loving. And yeah, she was great. What do women in comedy go through? I think it's really like this idea that um, we are uh, lesser than in um, terms of like, we uh, don't make as much money. We don't get as much clout. We don't get as much um, applause <laughs> and all of this stuff. And that, you know, women are uh, really, you know, we're kind of like relegated to all of these different sort of like stereotypes or archetypes in comedy. And like she had it way worse. Like, I think it's the uh, continual uh, sort of relegation of like having to sort of follow certain rules or expectations for women. 
And she really flouted that, being um, an older woman in a very male-dominated industry, which was really um, hard when she was going through it. But also, you know, she was a very raunchy club comedian, too. So that's so great. I think, you know, she was really uh, ahead of her time in so many ways and then right on time in so many ways. So I'm really grateful to have known her. Now, as I alluded to earlier, um, you know, she mentored me briefly um, after we shot this um, this project together, this pilot for Bravo. And mm -hmm. the pilot wasn't picked up, which was, you know, totally fine, whatever. But our friendship blossomed. Yeah. And the best piece of advice she gave me was to just, no matter what, always have the courage to be myself. And I'm cu mm. curious as to whether or not she gave you a gem like that, that you hold true to your heart to this day. I think it was really that she uh, was always telling me that the older that you get, the more they're going to want you and the more that you're going to do and that it's going to get better as you get older and that we're not like actresses who sort of age out, which I think is um, it's really it's a really great thought, you know, that, OK, well, it's going to just get better as we grow into who we're supposed to be. And that's a, a wonderful thing to know. Why do you think, you know, the LGBTQ community loved Joan so much? I think because she was just so um, outrageous, outspoken. She's quite a maternal figure. There's something about her that is really like uh, reminiscent of the grand damn divas, like, you know, like uh, Judy Garland or Maria Callas or any of these sort of like very storied uh gay icons like a Betty Davis or a Joan Crawford. You know, she had that sort of old Hollywood connected to her because she was talking a lot about old Hollywood. She was part of the generation of um, female stars who really lived in glamour and lived the lifestyle of glamour and was a kind of um, patroness of gay culture. And I, I, I don't know, like, I think to me, it's very obvious, but it's hard to exactly put into words what it is. But it's um, it's a goddess energy, but it's also a specific kind of goddess, which I think, I, I don't know, I have all these bird feeders at my house. Mm -hmm. And they only seem to attract non-breeding males. <laughs> and it, to me, that is like so on brand. <laughs> How do you know your bird feeders are only attracting non-breeding males? Because it's a specific kind of um, bird. They have like an orange throat. They're orange throated because the ones that are breeding are bright red in the stomach and, and throat to attract females because the females are all sort of dab, drab brown. They're, I think they're called house tits, which is a really funny <laughs> name for birds. But so I, uh, I noticed that only the orange-throated ones were coming by. They're sort of like very, like a specific kinds. And I, I read that they're, oh, those are the non-breeding males. So it's very, it's perfect. So my, my house is basically the Abbey or uh, Splash, <laughs> Old Splash. Remember old Splash. Old splash? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I could not wait to go downstairs in the basement. That was my hangout spot. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like the, like, it's actually, they're, they're very, like, violent birds they'll like peck each other out of 
out of the bird feeder. It's like very, um, it's like the vault. <laughs> it's like the old meat packing district when there was S and M clubs there. It's it's quite rowdy, and uh, yeah, it's great. I I have one more comedian I'd like to bring up, and this one was something that you you tweeted about, and you you said, "quote We talked about how long we've been friends and doing stand up at places like Cobb's. It was really nice to talk to Bob. I wish I were not his final guest. I wish there was more to come from him." Thank you, Bob. And of course, that was your tweet about the great Bob Saget. First of all, I'm sorry, you know, about his passing. Um, he was beloved by, you know, millions, obviously. And yes, your tweet was so personable. Um, how did you two meet? We met. I mean, you know, it's like you just meet each other. All comedians know each other somehow. We met. Um, I don't even know, like probably, I just feel like I've always known him. In San Francisco at Cobbs or the Punchline or one of those clubs. And I've just known him. I mean, I think of him as somebody that like is always gonna be around. Like these sort of, the eternals, like he's just an eternal presence in comedy, in um, television. It was a real shock to lose him as it was for Louis Anderson, which I think I'm still processing, that's a very difficult thing to even think about. With somebody like Betty White, who of, of course is also in a sort of that, that league of eternal, somebody that you had really sort of come to rely on in um, a presence in comedy and in television. Well, you know, she was almost 100 years old, she's 99, so it's like, that's almost like an inevitable loss in a sense, a very sad one, but also, it, it's a hundred, it's almost it's like, it's a century. It's a long time to live. It is. But with somebody like Bob or, or somebody like Louie, it, to me it's very shocking because they're, they're rather close to my age. So I, 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 don't, I don't even know what to do about that. Why is it so important to you to maintain friendships in the industry the way that you do? I mean, these friendships that, you, that we just talked about are decades and decades long. You know, comedy is a very rarefied art form. It's a strange one because it's very democratizing in that, you know, uh, I feel like with singers or even movie stars, there's a kind of luster that that endures. But with comedy, it doesn't because you get, if you're if you're like a famous, famous comedian, your fame buys you like 60 seconds of whatever on stage. And then you really have to work for it, whatever it is. Every comedian ultimately has to be funny within seconds of their appearance. <laughs> so it's like you constantly have to reinvigorate the reason why you exist in the industry that you're in. You know, there's a kind of understanding be between comedians, like we're actually those sort of workhorses of entertainment. We have to continually uh, work on what we're doing, work on our craft. Not to say that actors and musicians and other artists don't do that, but it's a different kind of thing that, that you know, when you see a, a, a singer, you want them to sing their greatest hits, where the comedian, you know all their jokes, so you don't want them to do uh, any old jokes. It's hard. <laughs> that is so true. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that is very true. Yes. I'm not going to tell that one joke I've heard a thousand times, but I'll do that for Prince if Prince was still alive. Play Purple Rain. Right. You can't 
help but want the greatest hits from the singers and the rock stars. You, you want to hear what they're famous for, but with comedians, you don't want to hear what they're famous for because we, you know, th with jokes, jokes are not the same things as songs. So, um, but in a sense that there, there is an essential joke that every comedian is known for that, um, existential joke. Every comedian has one existential joke that they keep repeating. Like, um, so mine is, I am not supposed to be here, but I am. I've kind of deviated from the path of Asianness, of Koreanness. Um, I went into comedy. I went into it very young. I told my mother when I was 14, I wanted to be a comedian. And she said, oh, maybe it's better if you just die. So every joke is sort of based on that premise. Mm -hmm. Somebody like Jerry Seinfeld is like, uh, his existential joke is, is it me? Am I the only one that sees this? And so every joke is sort of like, and there's not that many for comedians because I think humor is based on a few questions that people ask in existence. So there's not that many questions that a comedian can really ask because there's not that many, but um, every comedian has sort of an essential joke. I love the way you described your core joke, if you will, um, that you're not supposed to be here, but you are. Yeah. Because I feel like that's my mm -hmm. mentality mm -hmm. just in life as an openly gay person. Right. Like, right. Not, I'm not supposed to be in these spaces, but I am. Right. And then you say your existence is a continual explanation of that, that idea, you know, and in creating new spaces to explore that idea. What is it about queer friendships in particular that? is so invigorating for you? Because it seems as if, even down to the new movie that you, I think is in uh, post-production now, Fire Island? Yes, yes. Seems to be uh, really focused in on friendships and queer friendships. Right, well, it's, it's the uh, chosen family. Because a lot of times when you're growing up gay, your family of origin is not necessarily accepting of you entirely. I mean, I think that acceptance has grown over the years but in general queer people tend to choose other queer people as family and that could be a lot of trauma bonding where i come from which is trauma bonding from aids um homophobia homophobic violence um gay bashing a general disregard from society you know from being the butt of jokes from comedies from the beginning of cinema, you know, that the idea that we trauma bond because we exist in this um, very exclusive, very shunned society. So we have a, a, an element of trauma bonding, but then it, it, it's still bonding, you know, it's a very close knit way of being. And then a lot of times queer families emerge out of hooking up and then realizing you're actually sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really funny, I think. So you now we're getting to the meat of it. Yeah, you know the entirety of a person. So, so are you suggesting that Grinder is really just Friendster for like the, the new generation? It is. It's like it's it's like Ancestry.com actually. You know, because it's more it's more like if you hook up with somebody and then you realize that you're sisters and then you're bonded for life, but you're also not necessarily sexual with each other again because you don't need to go there again. 
So you can are free to explore every other avenue of relationship that exists, which I think is one of the great things about gayness is that you know, so sometimes it's always it starts with a hookup and then it ends with um, brunch, you know, family plot, <laughs> brunch and a brunch and a brunch. You know, I'm so glad you brought that yeah. up because there is an aspect of this conversation that we're having that I'm heavily engaged with right now because I'm at the age now I have a son and my son mm -hmm. is now 25 and he's a good looking guy. And mm -hmm. he's now the age mm -hmm. that a lot of my friends would go after. And so I'm trying to like, yeah, I'm trying to like talk about, you know, we need to be mentoring young people more. We shouldn't just be sleeping with them. And it's coming from this place of fear because I don't want anyone right. going after my kid, basically. Right. It's so funny. It's like a very, but it's true. It's, but I think a lot of it is. Because in our generation, a lot of the older generation died of AIDS. So in a, in a sense, we're like the latchkey kids of gay society. Everybody in their 50s and 60s survived AIDS in a very, at a very young age. So the generation right above us are all dead. So we have a missing rung of the ladder that we had to reach over in a sense like we sort of survive without elders. Mm -hmm. We don't know what aging is supposed to be. It's a very strange generation to be in because we are missing the people right above us. That is so true. So in a lot of ways, we sort of are feral, you know, because we raised ourselves. And we're also sort of the first legal gays. Explain. <laughs> so it's Ex a very... Because I feel as if... I like we're both in our 50s and I feel as if I've spent most of my time out trying to become a legal gay but you're saying that we are legal gays yeah yeah we're legally gay because it's like finally society has acknowledged the problem of homophobia and tried to rectify it so we're like been alive during the time of okay now it's fine because I, I still remember negotiating weird conversations with lesbians who weren't out saying like well i'm with this person I'm with someone, you know, and like never ever mm -hmm. saying like it, what the gender of the person was or, um, you know, so there's like a, a weird like place of like, it's a second childhood in a sense, because you're growing up in a society that accepts gayness and expects gayness in a way. Um, like I'm watching Euphoria, which is so trippy. Mm -hmm. It's such a great show, Tremendous. but it's so, it's so mind expanding to think about like young people now who have so much uh, leeway to really identify in any way they want. So you're straight? Kinda. Are you gay? Kinda. So you're bi? Well, I don't think of it that way. What do you mean? You never like thought about your sexuality before? Not in a particularly rigid way, no. To be gay, to be straight, to be trans, to be, uh, you know, like this character, Jules, who's trans, but she wears a binder. So she's like, you know, transitioning and then changing the idea of transitioning. So it's a very evocative place to be in. And it's sort of like the cutting edge of where young people are. And young people expect that. But, you know, as, as an older gay, I look at that and I'm like, oh, this is incredible. This is so mind expanding that this is happening. You refer to yourself several times as an older gay. Mm -hmm. But you don't say with any sort of 
dread. <laughs> well, As a lot of men would do. <laughs> it's different with guys because I think with men, it, it, there's so much um, invested in uh, youth and vitality and youthful beauty and uh, body culture. There, there's sort of like a lot of um, arenas that you can go in as a gay man in terms of typing and body and awareness. And I, I think it's it's like there's so much more expansive places to be in if you don't commit to being a bear or being a, a twink or, uh, you know, being um, whatever it is that society sort of relegates gay men as, you know, there's so much more to be. I think that um, there's always safety in numbers too. So there's this idea that, okay, if I can be this, that it's like safer for me. But I don't know if it necessarily serves our own um, self-worth because then you start to sort of compare and despair. So it's a it's a very difficult place to be in, I think. Um, for gay men, body culture has always been very, very difficult to maneuver. And uh, so it's, it's, it's something that I've witnessed for, for many years as saying, oh, that's got to be like the roughest, roughest place. And yet it's all self-inflicted. It's like self-inflicted trauma. Like no one's doing that to us, but us. Right. But it's, it's a kind of like where um, the patriarchy uh, really inflicts itself on gay culture. You know, it's where our sort of like, um, it's where our daddy issues really come out, you know? And it's hard to figure that out because it's like, oh, we're doing it to ourselves, but really, are we? It's, 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 got, it's still coming from the outside in some way. Like, it's almost like, well, if you can't be heteronormative, then you have to conform in some way. So it's still society inflicting its pains on us. In, in a, in, it's, it's very sinister. Do you foresee now that, you know, we're the generation of legal gays and, and theoretically speaking anyway, you know, as the generations after us continue to grow and come into their own, there's less and less of a grip of those norms on those generations. Yes. Do you think we might be the last generation? I don't think we're going to be the last, but I think that we're we're going to be um, witnessing a change. I mean, I see a change already, which is great. I think the awareness of it has really changed us. You know, it's hard to know when these sort of invisible bonds are there. Like, it's hard to know where... Uh, we end and society begins. So it's like, how, how do you figure out where the internalized homophobia is? How do you figure out where the internalized sexism is? How do you figure out where the internalized racism is? It's like trying to figure out those things of where do um, I achieve autonomy? Where can I have autonomy from these isms? And so, you know, we're learning and, and we learn that from young people. Um, we learn that, I think, a lot from social media. I think we've been failed by education. Uh, so we're like educating ourselves in a new way. Now, shifting gears for a second, I, I mentioned the, the film Fire Island. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I love about it, uh, without seeing anything, <laughs> is that there are a lot of Asian Americans cast in this film. Yes, yes. Um, I'm assuming that was purposeful. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's an Asian American uh love story it's a gay asian american 
beautiful love story um, and and really all about the uh, the internalized racism and internalized homophobia that exists within the queer community that we're like finally like learning to recognize within ourselves and yet um, also in the framework of Pride and Prejudice, which is a very famous, very white story. But at the same time, the, the themes are internal. It's all about class and how it affects us in the realm of queerness, which I think is really incredibly important, but also incredibly true and, and, and also really funny to examine. So I, I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of it. Um, it was written by uh, uh, Joel Kim Booster, who is a great um, Asian American comedian. And the star, he's a star, and he's just phenomenal in it. I went to the theater and I saw Crazy Rich Asians like three, four times. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to figure out was I seen it that many times because Henry is so hot? Mm -hmm. Was I seen it that many times because the film was that great? Or was I seen it that many times because I wanted to be purposeful in making some sort of statement in terms of supporting films like that? And I would like to think we're getting to the point in which we don't have to politicize our cinematic viewing, but I don't think we're anywhere near that place as a queer culture and definitely not in terms of being racial minorities. My question to you is, does it matter to you as an artist? Why someone's coming to see your work? Yeah, I mean, I think it matter. It definitely matters. Like, and I return to certain films for visibility purposes continually. Like, I continue to return to the film Sunday Bloody Sunday, which is a great film mm -hmm. about bisexuality. It's by the incredible John Schlesinger, who uh, directed Midnight Cowboy. Also, strangely covertly about bisexuality. <laughs> it sure is. But, uh, probably more about gay love, but, but Sunday Bloody Sunday, I really return to continually over and over. It's because I want to feel seen. And so Crazy Rich Asians, again, is something that I would return to continually over and over because I want to feel seen. And, and, um, and Henry is amazing and gorgeous. And it's, to me, I, I love it for Ronnie. I love Ronnie Chang. I think he's so cute. I have a question on him. I, I really think uh, <laughs> he's, him and Jimmy O. Yang are the unsung stars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're so funny in it. But I, I think it's like, um, seeing things for political reasons are, it's a very deep need to want to feel validated in society. And to uh, discount that um, is to discount our identity. So. I always return to uh, films like this because it's it's a it's a very it, it grounds me in um, a sense of uh, feeling seen, feeling validated, um, especially in a film like Sunday Bloody Sunday because it's like I think it's 1968. So that to me is like a very deep acknowledgement of like oh we've existed since I was born, so we must continue to exist. So it's a very great thing. Is it exhausting though? Like, I, I'll be honest with you. I get tired of making sure I'm there opening weekend for all the black movies. <laughs> like, I'm like, do I really need to see this right now? And I was like going, yes, because opening weekend is important and I have to support. Yes, and it's pleasurable. Like, it's pleasurable. Like, I, I just love movies and I love, you know, I love getting to see Shang-Chi in the theater and I love getting to go, go mm -hmm. and seeing and supporting these artists that I love and... 
It is exhausting, but it's also it's it's a pleasant exhaustion because I'm going to go to the movies anyway. So why not? Is there a project that you haven't done, which doesn't seem possible because you've been so prolific in your career, but is there a project that you haven't <laughs> done um, that you want to push yourself, you know, whether it is, you know, cinematic or whether it's like theatrical, like is there some expression of Margaret Cho that hasn't transpired yet? Well, I um, did a short last year called a Koreatown ghost story, and I loved it. When you and Edward were kids, your parents and I made a pact. We promised you and Edward to each other. A mother can't provide everything. The best husbands are dead husbands. We're in the process of development now, but I would love to do horror, more horror, because I love the genre. I think that there's a lot of like intense, um, feeling and intense like stuff psychological need that comes out in horror like i love jordan peele and all that he's done with horror i think get out and us are such important films because they're really getting to the root of a real problem that is really an intense feeling of fear so i i mean i've always been a big fan of asian horror because i think like japanese horror korean horror exists because we do have a spirit element in society that is real to us so we kind of deal with these like existential fears in a very real way and i think in american film that that racism is uh perfectly encapsulated in the metaphor of horror because in horror it's like horror films are really about somebody finding the strength to within themselves to overcome i think comedy it's always often like you know, we think, oh, it's always funny, but it's actually, it's the truth of comedy that really pushes it forward. And I think in horror, in the truth in horror is really what pushes it forward. What's been the trickiest aspect for you to navigate over the course of your career? I, and I, I know I'm asking you to try to like split the baby and forgive me, but I, it, it is interesting to me <laughs> because you have so much going on because you are a woman in comedy. You are, you know, part of the LGBTQ community. You mm -hmm. are Asian American. And what you talked about earlier, you're not supposed to be here. I won't say that, but I will say, hey, this is unusual. And it still seems to be unusual, even though yeah. like Bowen Yang <laughs> is, you know, obviously blowing up on SNL and Conrad Ricamora blew up on How to Get yeah. Away with Murder. And I love him, by the way. So if you if you talk to him. Yeah. Just to <laughs> He's so beautiful. <laughs> oh, my God. He has all of these muscles in his back that I didn't oh know existed. He's so gorgeous. Like, he's such a great guy, too. He is so uh, fun and so sweet. Margaret, I am a married man. You cannot hook us up. Stop it. I know. <laughs> no, but as delightful as he is on screen, he is, is so delightful on, uh, uh, on set and in life. And what a great guy. I love him. We had the best time working together. Uh, we laughed so much. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, I think what the hardest thing is really um, dealing with uh, invisibility and the, the idea of racism as invisibility, because how do you counteract invisibility? It's like, how do you become visible? That's a very strange place to be in. And um, so that's probably been the eternal struggle of trying to learn how to become visible. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it. Absolutely. 
Margaret Cho, thank you so much for your time and your humor and just always just showing up even though you're not supposed to be there. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the hardest stories I've ever had to cover was the murder of Michael Brown. Speaking with black residents, sharing what it's like for them to be in Ferguson, Missouri, the raw emotions of it all, the protests, the fires and riots, tear gas. After the death of Trayvon Martin, I had hoped that we were much further along, but we weren't. I was on the CNN set in Ferguson with Don Lemon for much of Michael's funeral, and we spent a great deal of time trying to speak honestly about where we were as a country with regards to race, where we are now. You know, self-care is a phrase that we hear a lot, you know, thanks to COVID and everything. And my friendships with Don and Jonathan is an essential part of my own self-care. Relatively speaking, there's not a whole lot of us, you know, openly gay, black men in news media. Lord knows I've been to enough fundraisers with Jonathan to make me wonder if there were any other gay black men in news media besides the three of us. That's why it's so good to have these two as part of my chosen family. There's like this telepathy between us because of our shared experience. If we're making eye contact, we're basically blinking in Morse code. And when one of us succeeds, it feels as if we all do. I didn't have that growing up, but it sure as hell is nice to have that today. In our conversation, we talk about work and mentoring and what it's like being in an interracial relationship while covering race in America. Who would have thought coming up that three openly gay black men will be able to juggle these plates in national news media. This is like crazy. I feel like this is what James Baldwin was pushing for, for this to be normalized. Or am I overstating the fact? Because because when I think about it, it ain't like there's a whole bunch of us. <laughs> Most of us are in the Zoom call. <laughs> I was going to say, who are we missing? <laughs> Look, I think you two are killing the game. I've, I've been at the same network for 16 years almost. And I mean, finally get, got to prime time. You know, LZ, we used to share that network together. You would be on my show. And I just feel like you guys are killing the game. Like you're out here trying new things, doing new things, moving around, doing your own thing. So um, yeah, I feel like you're, you guys are living the dream more than I am, especially James Baldwin's dream. <laughs> I don't know about that. I appreciate the calm words, but I was going to say, it's like, come on, Don. I think I texted you what, like at midnight telling you exactly you were killing the game because you were handling the breaking news of the attack on Ukraine. Oh yeah. And obviously we all were aware that it could occur at any moment, but for you to be live on air as it was unfolding and then navigating that I got 24 hours before I was required to share any thoughts and I had time to read books and time to, to view previous interviews. You had to navigate that in real time. That, to me, is killing the game. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. I have to say, 
It's, I'm glad you recognize that because you're in the business. You're, that's not easy to do. And um, you just have to remain calm. And then also when you have, you know, explosions going off and correspondents who are um, putting on flak jackets and they're in different regions of names that you haven't pronounced in years, like, you know, all kinds of things that you just don't, you have no idea. People are talking to you in your head and they're delivering papers off, off camera. And it's really tough, but the, you just remain calm. Look, I'm just fortunate that I'm in a position to be able to do that and to do it with honesty and to be in the body that I'm in uh, and to be able to share this moment with you. I, I, honestly, I just live in, a, in, in gratitude and uh, thank you for that. But I'm really, I, I, I'm, honestly, I'm in awe of you too. I really am in awe of you too. And that's why I think that's why we have such a great friendship because mm-hmm. there's a mutual respect, mutual, mutual admiration. On my show yesterday, um, I did a video essay, which was a sort of shrunken version of a column I wrote about that Gallup poll that showed that 21% of Gen Z identifies as something other than heterosexual. Wow. 21%. And I thought back to when I was Gen Z's age, like they're now 25 years old, the adults in Gen Z, the oldest of 25. And I thought back to when I was 25, coming out as a Gen Xer at 25, Remember when that coming out was a political act? Yeah, yeah. Yes. That you did that for visibility. You did that. And it was it was scary. Yeah. Because there weren't that many people around you um, who were also out. And so I thought back on that and thought back on how, you know, people say actions speak louder than words. Well, back then we were fighting for the words. Right. We were right. we were fighting for people to hear us and see us, and it took uh, it took people coming out. It, I mean, it started with Stonewall with people, you know, pushing back against the police raid. But then it was the uh, AIDS epidemic that pushed people out of the closet and say, uh, n- you know, I'm I'm right here. You've got to pay attention to me. Um, my life, our lives are at stake. Uh, it was don't ask, don't tell. And people saying, like, wait, so we can die for this country, but we can't be truly ourselves. And it was the act of coming out and having people understand that we weren't this distant other. We were actually in your families, right next door or upstairs um, or your colleagues. And so, you know, to what you were saying at the beginning of the conversation, Elsie, the idea that when I told my mother I was gay, she told me, don't tell anybody because it would ruin my career. This was 1990. She said, don't tell anybody. Wow. And now look, I mean, I pinch myself every day because I'm this news nerd kid who always dreamt of doing this and now I get to do it. And when I came out, I thought maybe I won't be able to because of who I am. And now it's not even a thing. In fact, in some instances, it, it is a plus and a benefit because it gives me, it gives us a viewpoint um, about a lived experience that most people don't have. And because we have that, it enriches our coverage. It enriches our reporting. But you know what? I, I have to say, look, you're right about Stonewall and all of those things. But look, let's not forget, it was those Black people for the civil rights movement that that really, that was the roadmap. Yeah. That was the roadmap for everyone. And our- Still is. Mm-hmm. And Baird Rustin, 
who was queer and, and shunned and uh, in his time out uh, as much as he could be. And back in the 30s and 40s, he was out. And back in the 30s and 40s. So look. He was an OG. <laughs> yes. And so we have to look at the civil rights movement. Yes, he is, he's an OG. So we are, we're here. And if we weren't doing what we're doing, then we wouldn't be living up to and paying the homage to those people and all of those efforts um, that we should be. So I think we should be doing that. And that look, and I feel like we should, we can be doing a lot more. And I always tell the young folks, you can do a lot more. Don't, I tell them, don't worry about it. Don't worry about being other. Don't worry about being queer. Don't worry about being black. Don't worry about that. Yes, I get it. I've been in this game for a long time. You let the OGs like me and LZ and Jonathan worry about that. So you worry about being excellent. We'll take care of the rest. You have a you have an issue, young person. Come to me, the OG, and then I'll handle it for you. That's how I feel about that. It is so wonderful to hear you say that, Don, because mentoring is such a big part of what I value at this particular point in my career now than anything else. I mean, don't get me wrong, the recognitions and awards and all that stuff, that's all good. Mm -hmm. It's it's wonderful being recognized by your peers. But at this point, it is about like the young people and mentoring and making sure that they don't have to deal with the same sort of potholes and issues that, you know, we did on the come up. Yeah. But, you know, this conversation, you know, that we're having, and we spoke earlier on the, on the podcast to Margaret Cho, who was absolutely wonderful. And we talked about how important friendships have been throughout her career. And she talked about Bob Saget and it's about Joan Rivers yeah. and all these wonderful names. And you two whether it's talking to you directly or just seeing your presence, whether it's in print or on television, has been so instrumental in my own development. And I'm just curious from, from the two of your perspective, and let's start with Jonathan with this question. When you think about all the, the pieces that went into building your career and where you are in life right now, where do you put family of choice? Oh, um, family of choice is very important. Well, it's very important to me because my family, my natural born family, all they could do for me was just say, that's nice, baby. <laughs> oh, well, you're going to do it, baby. They, <laughs> At least you got that. Well, but, I, wait, but, right. but the point I'm making is I am the only writer, the only journalist in my family. The closest I came to having um, a, a family member in television was my uncle McKinley, who was an electrician at 30 Rock. And so he was, if something went wrong in your office, socket went out, light bulb went out, you called the shop. Girl, I thought you were talking about the show. No. I was like, oh, he was in 30 Rock. I love that show. No, no, no. <laughs> at 30 Rockefeller Plaza. LZ. I, I know, I know. And so for, for my family, you know, the, the kid who ran off at the mouth about wanting to be a news commentator, well, you got your dreams. That's nice. The great thing is no one, you know, said, well, you'll never do that. But with the family, family of choice, those friends, they're in it with you at the same time. You're going through lots of stuff together at the same time. And um, they're better able, at least in my experience, we're better able to understand or commiserate with me about things that were that were happening. And then also, sometimes the family of choice can be stronger and better than the natural family. And by natural, meaning parents and blood. blood. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's like, I know there's a word for it. There is a word. 
<laughs> See, that's why I write with no camera and the thesaurus is up all the time. <laughs> and that's my family of choice because we can be shady. <laughs> what about you, Don? You know, because we all have relationships with our families. So we're not in the positions in which you know, a lot of our brothers and sisters have been completely excommunicated from their families. And so family of choice is the only family that they can rely on and turn to. We're not exactly at that point, but at the same time, um, to Jonathan's earlier point, family of choice in our position has been very instrumental, at least for me and for him, I'm assuming the same for you. Yes. Well, I mean, look, I, family of choice, I think is, I think family of choice LZ, is even more important for our generation. It was more uh, integral to the older people because sometimes we simply could not tell our family. Mm. And when we didn't, until we came out to our families, we had to have some sort of support group. So, you know, I had a lot of gay friends that ended up being my family or a lot of queer people, whether it was gay or lesbian or wherever it is in the LGBTQ plus spectrum. I had a lot of people who were my support system and still are my family to this day that I keep in touch with. I think, look, family, blood families, blood relatives are really important because they're blood and they get it and they can support you in things like when you really need someone to talk to, you call your mama, right? If someone's going to understand, it's going to be your mama or your sister or your daddy or whoever, and they'll get it even usually, usually if they have not excommunicated you from the family or have, haven't disowned you, that does happen. I haven't, I fortunately have not had that happen to me. Family of choice is very important. Look, every year I do a Friendsgiving where I go for Thanksgiving and I spend it with my friends because that is my support system. Those people, when I'm in a bind or whatever it may be on the spectrum of problems, they are savvy enough, right? People who are savvy enough to tell me, okay, this is what you do. You call your agent, you do this, you get an attorney, you do blah, 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 blah. you get a producer. They know that. So that is my, and those people, I have friends who elevate me. You elevate me. Um, Jonathan elevates me. People who I have people for my friends who I can learn from, right? Who who have empathy, who who can show me things. And so I celebrate those people every year at Thanksgiving. I spend it with a big group of people. So, you know, that extended family or family of choice is extremely important to me, almost equally so to my family. Now, look, I, I love I love them. I love you guys. But I think that we, especially as you know, queer people, we need that extended family more than probably other people. So I was asking you guys, you know, in text, what are some of the topics we should touch on? The elephant in the room. And then everyone's ears sort of, you know, picked up when I brought up interracial relationships. Because all three of us are in interracial relationships, specifically where all three of us are with white men. You know, I was aware of that, but I never thought about it as a thing. It was just, isn't it? We've never really discussed that, have we? We haven't discussed that. And I don't know, do you guys get harassed online yes. for being with a white man as you're trying to have these race conversations? Yeah, yeah I do. I don't. You don't? Mm -mm. I can't speak to Don's experience, but I get people either through my DMs or just directly like either on Twitter or Gram or whatever social media it happens to be questioning my blackness because mm -hmm. not only am I gay, but I'm with a white man. And usually I don't even pay attention to it because it's just like whatever, whatever. But every now and then, I'll be honest, it hits me. It does hit me. Not because I feel guilty or because I feel as if I've betrayed some aspect of my identity but only because I have had so many conversations with black women and what they 
perceive as to be feeling as if they've been shunned or rejected because of black men preferring or dating people outside of the black race. And I don't ever want black men to feel as if they're not beautiful or wanted. That's the only reason why I kind of feel weird about it because I want these fine brothers to know, I just didn't see you. (laughs) Right. And we know because we are, every once in a while, we'll see something and we'll be like, the dolls are good. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's chocolate. <laughs> and it's <laughs> Why do you think, like, what was it about our lives, Don? So I always get in trouble for this, but it's complicated for me because, <laughs> you know, I'm an early adapter. And, um, you know, this goes back to the conversation where you're talking about people being out. Look, I have I love those stories where people say I came out because of you or you, you, you know, you encouraged me to tell my mother or just to come out to my family. And I've had many of those. And some a lot of them are for just some young people or just random people. A lot of them are from people who I've dated. And most of the people I've dated who are men of color were not out. And so it was I would encourage them to come out to their family and their families and they couldn't. I was at a point. I'm at a point now where I don't want to live in the closet. You know, we're in a moment now because of, of same-sex marriage, marriage equality, uh, that we got to very quickly. And when I was about coming around, there wasn't a lot of that. There wasn't a lot of out men of color. And that's just, I'm just being honest. People were, and I didn't want to live that way because I was a man who was out and didn't want to live that way. And even, even though uh, I may not have been out even uh, in my career, I was out personally with my family. I've been out like you, Jonathan, since 1990-something that I've been out and having my boyfriend and bringing them home. And there were black guys couldn't go home with me. They didn't want to do it. They were too afraid. They wouldn't tell their families. And I didn't want to be in a relationship with someone where I can't go home with you for Christmas or I have to live a lie. And so um, that was uh, part of the hindrance for me. And it is all, this is going to be really weird. I'm sure it's going to be controversial. I didn't want to date someone who was a fan. And I understand that because of the position that I'm in, that a lot of people look up to me, a lot of gay men who are of color. And a lot of the ones I went out with were like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm going out with Don Lemon. And I'm like, no, I don't want that. And that happened a lot. And I kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. Right. But that was a, that was an issue. But the biggest thing for me was not being out. Now, if I happen to be single, if it was now, I think it would be different. And so it just wasn't what it is now. And so, look. I get it on the, not, not, not only do I get it on the blogs, people actually write about it in legitimate publications that, you know, Don Lemon's on TV being Mr. Black Man every night and then he goes home to a white man. Um, so I get it from that and I get it also from black people saying, why are you dating a, a white man? And I'm like, I, I love who I love and I met who I met and it was a timing and that's where I am. I, I can't believe people are writing pieces, Jonathan, about this, but then again, we write pieces about everything. So why not this conversation, right? I can't recall anyone making a comment to me about, well, you know, well, you're married to a, to a white man. So what do you care? I, I don't get that. If anything, what tickles me, the white nationalists and the bigots who hear something that I say on television or in a column, and then they come back at me and say, well, you hate white people. You hate all white people. And I laugh because I, honey, you know, you really need Google is your friend. You are one Google search away from seeing that what you just said, it just doesn't hold, just doesn't hold up. 
doesn't right. hold up at all. You know, I, you know, I, I had a, a long, ugly duckling phase where I didn't, I didn't have black men, you know, hurling themselves at me and say, hey, let's date or anything or anything like that. They usually didn't like me. I forgot that one, Jonathan. Please speak on that. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it was, and you know, you, you catch hell, you know, back then in the 90s right. when I was young and young and single, mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand, for some white guys, I wasn't black enough for them. Yes. Yes. You know, they wanted, they wanted the- Preach, Jonathan. Preach, Jonathan. Yes, I had one, I went on one date with with a guy, this is in the early 2000s, met him on Match, we go on one date, perfectly lovely, calls me up in the middle of the night before our second date and says, I'm so torn, I really liked our date, that I think I'm gonna go and date Tyrone. (laughs) And I, just for a week, I was just talking about this Tyrone. So for some, so so for some white guys, I wasn't gangster at all. Yeah. Right. Oh my gosh! No. Yeah. LZ, you fit that whole thing. LZ is brown, and he's a he's a man, <laughs> and he likes sports. Right. A- am I now? You're fine as hell, LZ. You know that. Don't even try. First of all, I'm taking every compliment that come my way. <laughs> however, however, I, I will say that there is something very off-putting about being fetishized in such a way that you're just cognizant of it the minute you meet the person. Mm-hmm. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people think I present in a certain sort of, you know, traditional masculine way. Fine, get it, whatever. It is what it is. But But I can't be me... Because even in the confines of being openly gay and myself, you're still trying to box me into an ideal of what you think I should be, even though I just came out trying to be me. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a really sort of nuanced conversation that's almost impossible to have with someone who's targeting you for talking about police brutality when you're black and you're married to a white man. Mm-hmm. Like somehow, some way in their minds, you're automatically disqualified from even being able to have a legitimate place in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm like, well, I'm on the streets getting tear gas. Where are you at? Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm getting I'm you getting I'm tear gas and beaten up by police live on camera on the CNN. Where are you at? Where are you at? <laughs> I'm out here in front of telling everybody, risking my career, telling everybody what is going on with the man, with the police, with everything. Where? What are you doing besides criticizing me mm-hmm. on social media? Like, come on, give me a break. Over who I happen to fall in love with. And who I happen to fall in love with. But right. it's so weird, though. I mean, you, I, don't think, I don't think people realize how tough it is for us to be able to navigate not only who we are as uh, gay Black men, meaning our sexuality and dating, whatever, but also to navigate the professional world of, of journalism, of, of television, of print, of radio, of this whole media system. I mean, you, come on now. Am I lying? No, 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 you're, you're not. Li- there are times that I'm sitting there and I go, okay, I'm an op-ed columnist, right? Mm-hmm. For like this prestigious leg- legacy newspaper, the LA Times. I know who our target audiences are, you know, from the different perspectives, from like, from a racial dynamic, from a socioeconomic dynamic, obviously LGBTQ plus issues, the whole nine. 
And I'm constantly am going, okay, now I've been gay twice already this month. Let me go on to be black now. Yeah. <laughs> like, <how to> do? <laughs> and it's and it's like, ooh, but I need to write about inflation. Ooh, but if I write about yeah. inflation, that means I can't be gay or black this week. Yeah. Is everything gonna be all right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Last question for you, gentlemen, because as I said, the conversation, this episode, if you will, is about friendships. And I just love our friendship and you know, support that we offer for for one another. You know, if you are let's say in front of a young person right now, one of these mentees or potential mentees who is just coming out or is just coming out in the professional world, what piece of advice would you give them in terms of how to navigate the professional world that is more open, but not open, if you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Knowing what you know now in terms of how instrumental relationships and and friendships have, have been for you at this juncture of your life. What do you say to these young people? For young people, as they navigate these things, as they try to understand who they are and what they stand for and what they believe in and their their view of right and wrong for them, that they keep their eyes wide open because not everybody who smiles in your face is your friend, but friends are very important. And the key thing is make sure they are friends, meaning they will have your back. Because in this business, those kinds of friends are few and far between. And I think that's why the three of us are, are such good friends. My biggest piece of advice is, like you said, if you get in this business because you think it's glamorous, you want to be a star, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Okay. Now I'm just talking about for people who are coming up in this particular business. And whatever business that you're in. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have to work hard. Number one thing is work hard. And number two thing I think is, is that nobody has to believe in your dream but you. Mm-hmm. That's a T.D. Jakes has, a, has a, a thing called about dreams. And he says, look at your neighbor and say, hey, neighbor, you don't have to believe in my dream. And you don't, right? And then he goes on and he says, now I just want the people who, have, who are on a mission. The people who are uh, crazy or insane, who have unbelievable faith. Look at your neighbor and say, you don't have to believe in my dream. You have to have that kind of passion in order to succeed, especially if you want to reach the highest levels of whatever career that you choose, whatever your chosen career path is. You have to have that kind of passion, you believing in your dream. Number two, believing in yourself, working extremely hard, not trusting everybody and not telling your business to everybody. And so you go home, you go to work, when the boss says, would you like to? You say yes before they finish the sentence. But you must believe in yourself and you have to work hard. And this is the biggest thing, I think, other than working hard. Do not give a crap what someone thinks about you. It matters not what you think about me. It matters what you think about yourself. And you're the only person that you will, from the day you were born to the day that you die, yeah. that, you, yeah. that you must go to bed with and wake up to. You're the only person that you have to live with and sleep with and die with. So believe in yourself and don't give a crap what anybody else thinks about you except for what you think about yourself. That's it. Delish, delicious. I'm through. That's what I was trying to say. Exactly that. <laughs> right there. On the next episode of Life Out Loud, it's time to talk about aging gracefully in the LGBTQ plus community. 
So who better to ask than the real OGs, the old gays? Yeah, I mean, we have uh, over 5 million followers now on TikTok. Sharing the lessons they've learned with all of us. These people want to know about us, want to know about our past, because obviously we're still alive, we're successful, and we're having fun. We'll talk about the big issues, and we'll have a little bit of a kiki. That famous word is... No! no. <laughs> uh, Samantha said, yes! <laughs> Get ready to think and laugh. No! <laughs> Next week on Life Out Loud. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And remember to hit subscribe if you haven't already. And please, please, please tell your friends, your family, your loved ones, your side pieces, your main pieces, anyone who you think could benefit from listening to these incredible stories from these remarkable people. And also, just take a moment to leave us a rating and review. That goes a long way to helping us get the word out. And more importantly, keep going. Life Out Loud with LG Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by my friend Trevor Hastings. Same producer is Brenda Salinas Baker. Our amazing production team includes David Toledo, Vika Arison, and Carrie Ann Thomas. The executive producer of Life Out Loud is Liz Alessi. A big shout out to Lakia Brown, Joe Moore, Robert Zapata, Tony Morrison, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, and Stacia Tashisku. I'm Elsie Granderson. This is that, that good, good. good.